Good to see you all. Got a new configuration here tonight. I sort of feel like I'm at the football stand. We have platinum seats here and gold and silver and bronze at the back, you know. All just a way to get extra money out of people there. But anyway, you just hear a better sermon up here. But there you go. I'll try and preach to you people right at the back as well. Uh, we're going to have a question time tonight. So uh, if you've got questions flowing out of tonight's passage, store them up, ask them later on at the right time or uh, out of any of Mark so far, so out of the first four chapters. Uh, I promised Sarah I'd have another question time when she was here because last question time in response to a question I danced here on stage and she missed it and so uh, she made me promise I wouldn't dance tonight. But anyway, uh, now let's pray and then we'll look at this great passage. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that unlike the people of Isaiah's time that we just read about, we would not be people who see but do not perceive, who hear but don't listen. We would not be people with hard hearts who fail to understand your word. Instead, we pray that your Holy Spirit might work through your word tonight, convicting us of its truth and working in us to change us into line with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by giving you a question to think about today, which is, what makes a great teacher? So just to sort of think back, maybe to a school teacher who you found was a great teacher or someone in your work, perhaps the teacher who might have taught you the most as a Christian uh, in your Christian life, what was it that made them a great teacher? Just have a think about it for a minute. I think there's all sorts of intangible things that make a great teacher. They're like they care about you. It's amazing how if someone cares about you, that sort of overcomes many, many other issues. Uh, it might be that they clearly love the subject matter, you know, those sort of things. That's not what I'm talking about in terms of a great teacher. Uh, I want to ask just in terms of the brass tacks of how you communicate what makes a great teacher. Uh, I think it's that they make complicated things simple to understand. I think that's what a great teacher does. A great teacher makes complicated things simple to understand. Uh, it's that they can communicate difficult concepts in a way that us, with our simple minds, can grasp them and get them. Sad thing is, I think there are many people who call themselves teachers who have a great gift for making simple things very complicated, uh, but a great teacher somehow does the opposite of that. They make the complicated simple, I think. Well, people often say that Jesus was a great teacher. You would have heard people say that. You might have said it yourself. And they say, one of the reasons they say he was a great teacher or a good teacher is because he taught in parables. So people say, well, Jesus was a great teacher because what he did, he had this gift of making the difficult to understand simple by using these stories, parables. A parable is just a story with a, excuse me, with a meaning. So it can be one sentence long or it can be a whole story like this one with all sorts of different uh, things in it. So the Sunday school definition of a parable is that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, and so people say Jesus was a great teacher because he used these things that people could sort of empathise with and understand from everyday life to tell them and to teach them truths about heavenly things, about the kingdom of God. But I think it's worth asking, is that actually true? Was Jesus actually a very good teacher? Uh, because have you ever noticed how hard some of his parables are to understand? Have you ever noticed that? If you haven't, you've never read them. 
I know when people are reading the Gospels for themselves. Do you know how I know? Because I get emails about parables. So if I read this parable, I've got no idea what it means. Or people come to me after church, so I read this one. I've got no idea what it means. And if everyone says you read the Gospels, generally people don't get what he's talking about in the parables. Have you noticed that as you read through Mark and as you read through the other Gospels? Even his disciples come up to him and say, Jesus, that was a great story. But what, what were you talking about exactly? I haven't quite got what you were talking about. A lot of people at the time would have said, Jesus' parables did not make the complicated simple. They made the obscure even more obscure. That was the general attitude to Jesus and his teaching at the time. And if you think about it, Jesus could have come and made it so simple. Jesus could have come and said, this is the kingdom of God. This is it. I am the king. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, repent, turn from your sins and believe in me because I'm the king. And at times he was that clear. There's sort of those moments where Jesus just sort of sums it all up in one sentence but he didn't do that most of the time more often he said the kingdom of God is like a pearl or the kingdom of God is like a house or the kingdom of God is like a farm or the kingdom of God is like a seed or like a lamp and lots of people say gee that sounds great Jesus really interesting but I don't know what you're talking about why is that why did Jesus do that it's because that is exactly what Jesus wanted to do. It wasn't that like Jesus was like your misguided year nine geography teacher who just wasn't very good. No, Jesus didn't want to make it clear. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus did not want to make it clear. Quite a shocking thing to say, really. And it blows people's minds a bit, so please come with me on this. But Jesus actually didn't want everyone to understand at that time so here in our passage today open up mark 4 here in our passage today we get this great moment of jesus teaching we read about how there are so many people coming to hear him teach and i think they were hoping for a few miracles as well but so many people there that they're on the beach and it's like he's forced out into the water he's got to get on a boat and that's sort of like his stage where he stands on the boat they sit down on the shore so that he can teach them. Otherwise, he would have been overrun by the number of people that were there. And he tells them this wonderful parable of the sower and the seed and the soils. And we'll look at the parable and what it means in a moment. But as he finishes the parable, the people don't get it. They're standing there going, I just don't know what he's talking about. And so you get this moment there at verse 10 where the 12 disciples, even his closest followers, the 12 disciples come and say, Jesus, we just don't get it. And this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 11. He answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables. Now this is really, really important to see what he's saying there. He's saying to his disciples, there are two types of people. To you... His disciples, you who have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, that's one type. And so you understand what I'm saying, he says, or at least you will in time. But the rest of the people, the crowds and the Pharisees, they don't have that secret. They don't have the key to unlock the understanding of these parables. And so all they hear is stories. All they hear is parables. And they hear but they don't understand, Jesus says. They see, 
but they don't perceive. Now, of course, the question then becomes, what is the secret? What is the key? And the thing is, it's not a secret in that it's hard to understand. Jesus isn't saying, oh, I've given you some clues, and if you're smart enough, you'll work it out. That's not what he's talking about. It's a secret in the sense that you didn't know it before, but now God has made it known to you. And the secret is that Jesus is the king. That's the secret. That Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. That's the key to understanding it all. And the way to be a part of God's kingdom is to repent, to turn from your sin, and to believe in Jesus. Once you understand that, Jesus is saying, like his disciples were coming to understand over time, then you look and you do perceive. Then you listen and you do understand and you do comprehend. But if you don't get that, then it's all just stories about lamps and pearls and farms and seeds and you won't ever understand. Now immediately someone might say, well then why, why God don't you reveal it to everyone? Why didn't Jesus say to everyone there, here is the key. Here's the key to understanding. Why didn't Jesus make it more clear to them at this time? Well, look again at verse 11 and then at verse 12. It says, he answered them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they may look and look, yet not perceive. They may listen and listen, yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. If you're reading that carefully, you should, like me, during the week, say, hang on, have I read that right? Because that's a shocking thing. That Jesus has said there. Jesus is saying, I'm speaking in parables because I don't want them to understand. Because if they understood, I'd have to forgive them. And I don't want to forgive them. Doesn't it go against everything you've ever heard Jesus say at any point, at any part of the Bible? Doesn't it go against every song we sing? And everything else, but that is what he's saying. He's saying, I don't want them to understand because if they understood, I'd have to forgive them. That's what he's saying. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah was called to be God's prophet. And God told Isaiah, it was our first reading before, God told Isaiah, People are not going to respond to your message at this time. Isaiah was 800 years before Jesus, speaking to the people of Israel, and he said, people are not going to respond to your message, not because they're not smart enough to understand it, but because I don't want them to, is what God told Isaiah. Because I've decided to bring judgment. See, God said to Isaiah, they've had their chances. I've been telling them to repent for over a thousand years, so now is the time for judgment. So God said to Isaiah, what your preaching is going to do actually is dull their minds. You might say some of my preaching sometimes does that to you, but that's another matter. He's saying what your preaching is going to do is actually harden their hearts. It's going to blind their eyes. It's going to block their ears because if they did listen and if they did understand and they did repent, well, then I'd have to forgive them. And so God told Isaiah back then, now is not the time for forgiveness. There will be a time for forgiveness. It's important to hear that. 
He's saying there will be a time for forgiveness, but it will be after my judgment has fallen. And that is what happened then, all those years before Jesus. God sent Babylon to come and wipe them out. And that was his judgment on unrepentant Israel. But then after the judgment, God saved a remnant who he forgave and brought back to be his people. And so Jesus was saying about his own ministry, my preaching now is like Isaiah's 800 years ago. I'm not expecting, I'm not even wanting everyone to understand. These people here, they will not respond. In a strange sort of way, my preaching in parables is actually meant to make them say, I don't know what he's talking about. It's meant to make them say, I don't like what he's talking about. It's meant to harden them because then God's judgment will fall. Now that sounds awful until you realise what the result of their hardening is. See, what was the result of their hardening? And this is the wonder of it. It's because they didn't respond. It's because they universally rejected Jesus that what event happened? His death on the cross. You see, they needed to be hardened so that they would reject him so that he could go to the cross and die for their sins and for ours as well. See, on the cross, God's judgment was falling, not on them who deserved it because they rejected him, not on us who deserve it because we've rejected God, but on Jesus himself. See, in his death, he would take the judgment of God that these people and us deserve. And then, only after God's judgment had fallen, would he rise from the dead, and then and only then would the offer of forgiveness be made available to everyone. See, this is the wonder of it. The preaching, the parables hardened them then. But then on Pentecost, after he's risen from the dead, these same people came and heard and said, what must I do to be saved? And many repented and believed in Jesus. See, this is a tricky little passage. And it's specifically about that point in history, about what was happening at the time of Jesus. It's about Jews hearing about Jesus before his death and resurrection. But even so, I think there's two little reminders in it for us. So pull out your handout and have a look. I've put the heading there, Lessons for Us. And there's two of them there. The first thing is it reminds us that Jesus is the key to everything. See, unless we grasp that Jesus is the king to be worshipped and to be followed and to be trusted, unless we grasp that, then nothing else matters. Everything else is irrelevant. And in fact, the whole Bible only makes sense when you understand who Jesus is and believe him and follow him. Sometimes I meet people and they say to me, I don't believe in Jesus, but I really love the Bible. And I sort of love its moral teaching and so forth. And I, I, usually I'm more well-mannered than this, but I want to say, rubbish. You don't love the Bible because the Bible doesn't make any sense unless you believe in the one it's talking about, who is Jesus. And the morality of the Bible doesn't make any sense. Sometimes Christians in their keenness say to people, "Ah, oh, well, even if you don't believe in Jesus, follow the morality of the Bible and you'll have a better life. No, it doesn't make sense. It's irrelevant because the morality of the Bible says the number one moral is follow Jesus. 
That's the thing. It's about godliness, which is following God and his Savior. So it doesn't make sense unless you know Jesus. So firstly, Jesus is the key to everything. Second thing is, it's just another little reminder of what we see so often in God's word. And that is that we need God to open our eyes to grasp who Jesus is. See, we haven't come to trust in Jesus. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you believe this about yourself. But you have not come to trust in Jesus because you are better at understanding parables than other people. You have not come to trust in Jesus because you're more intelligent. You have come to understand and trust in Jesus because God has worked through his Holy Spirit to convict you of the truth of his word. God has given you the key. He has opened your eyes to understand it. That's why we don't just share the good news of Jesus with people. We pray for them. See, we pray for them that God's Holy Spirit would work as the word is shared. So there's two little lessons from that little uh, first part about why he spoke in parables. But now, with all of that, what I want you to do now is just shake yourself off a bit. If the person next to you has got lost in all of that, give them a poke and wake them up. Or if you just want an excuse from me to give them a poke, you can do that. Let's now look, second part of the sermon, at the actual parable Jesus taught. So open up your Bibles to Mark 4. This is one of the most famous parables Jesus ever taught. Uh, Even people who don't know much about the Bible have heard this parable. It's a famous story. And for us, for most of us here, because we have the secret of the kingdom, because we know that Jesus is the king, for us it really is quite simple to understand. Even as we were reading it, before we got to the explanation, you knew basically what this parable was about. But just in case you didn't, we then read Jesus' explanation to his disciples. You see, for the people back there, they didn't have that. So let's think about the story. First of all, their culture was a rural one. They understood farming. Everyone understood farming. I am probably the person most removed from understanding farming in the history of the world. I hate gardening. My father grew up in the country and he is ashamed of me because he comes to... He's ashamed of me for so many reasons, but that's another matter. You can talk to him about that. But he comes over to my house and he looks at my yard and he just shakes his head. But I've actually worked it out really well because he comes over and he'll mow the lawns and he'll do the edges and he'll dig up weeds and stuff. And I'll say, yeah, I'm not very good at that. You better do it, you know, if you're so embarrassed about it. And he gets so embarrassed he does it for me. But anyway, that's all by the by. The point here is they knew what Jesus was talking about when he talked about casting seeds and soils and all that sort of thing. And so he says, when you cast out your seeds, there are four different soils that it lands on. The first is the path. And on the path, there's no soil for it to catch in, to grow in. So it doesn't even stand a chance. Before it even hits the chance to grow, a bird comes and takes it away. The next one is the rocky ground. He says, on the rocky ground, it starts to grow because there's a bit of soil. There's not much soil. So as soon as the sun, it sprouts up quickly, but as soon as the sun gets hot, it withers away because it's got no soil to build its roots in. Other seed falls on the good soil, but in amongst the thorns and in amongst the weeds. That's sort of my backyard. If you want to come and see an image of this, just come and have a look at my backyard. So even though it takes root, it never produces a crop because by the time it gets to a decent height where it should be producing fruit, the weeds and the thistles and the thorns are sort of crowded out and it doesn't get the sunlight. And then finally, though, he says, some, sort, some of the seed falls on the good soil. 
the deep soil, the rich ground, and it grows and it thrives and it produces a crop, sometimes 30 times what was sown, sometimes 60 times, sometimes miraculously 100 times what was sown. Now, as I say, already we know the point he's making because we read the explanation before and we have the key that Jesus is talking about himself and he's talking about his kingdom. But for the people listening, even the disciples, they didn't understand it. They would have been there going, why is Jesus giving us farming advice? And it's not even very good farming advice. Because a good farmer would say, I'm not going to waste any seed on that path. I'll get it all on the, the rich soil. So it's not even good farming advice. Others, the smarter ones, are thinking, there must be a metaphor here. I just can't work it out. And so later on, Jesus explains it to his disciples. And this is where we're going to focus, verses 13 to 20. Now, the key to understanding the parable is there in verse 14. He says, the seed that he's talking about is the word of God going out to the world. That's what it's all about. This is a parable about the spread of the gospel, about the message of Jesus, the King and the Saviour, going out to people, going out to the world. And the point of the parable is that as the gospel goes out, we will see these four different responses to it four different responses to the word of God wherever it is preached so there are people who are like the rocky path and you have met people who are like the rocky path haven't you you've shared the gospel with people who are like the rocky path they hear it but they never understand it or they just reject it outright and that is a lot of people and the point he points out here is that that is Satan's work do you see that there in verse 15 says immediately Satan comes and takes away the words sown in them. Now Satan generally uses very mundane means. I'm just too busy to bother reading that Bible. I'm just too busy to come along and hear the gospel from that talk or whatever it is. Often he just uses the busyness of life. Sometimes he uses the pride in our own intellectual capacity. People say, I'm too smart to believe that old myth and all that sort of rubbish. Who could ever believe a book written over 2,000 years ago? And people think they're clever as they reject it. But whatever reason, whatever means Satan uses, the seed doesn't take root. Then there's another type of person. And Jesus says, they're like the rocky ground. They hear the gospel and they seem to get it. They burn brightly for six months, 12 months, two years, whatever it is. But then it gets hard. Pressure comes, often from family and friends. Every Christian who's become a Christian as an adult, as opposed to growing up in a Christian home, many of you have had that wonderful blessing, but some of us didn't. When you become a Christian as an adult, you will have this uncomfortable conversation very, very quickly in your Christian life, which is when your family say to you, so you're saying, I'm a sinner. So you're saying, I'm a sinner. And usually they're they're inferring, so you think you're better than me. And immediately you feel the pressure to deny Jesus. Oh, I'm not, not saying you're a sinner. I'm, I'm, so, I'm sort of lost for words. Because you want to tell them, yes, I am saying you're a sinner, but I am too. I'm not saying it to judge you. I want you to come to know Jesus like me. But, but in your young Christian faith, I'm speaking from experience here, you don't know what to say and you feel the pressure. See, that pressure comes. Persecution starts. In time, there might be a time of suffering, sickness, a loss of a loved one, all sorts of things. Whatever it is, Jesus says, these people who burn brightly for a moment, then walk away. 
and turn their back on Jesus. It says there in verse 17, they have no root in themselves. Then there's the third type of person. They hear the word. And unlike the rocky ground, here it genuinely takes root in them. But if it was the negative things that that sort of damaged the second person and led them away from Christ, the pressures, the suffering, here it's actually the more positive things, often good things. It's the seduction of wealth. It's the desires for the things of this world, the lure of the career, the desire that other people will think well of you. Often, sadly in my experience, it's a person's desire for love. A desire for a relationship means they chase after a non-Christian and within a short time they've walked away from Jesus. All of these things, they enter in and choke out the word. See, this person probably still calls themselves a Christian. They might even still come to church, though only when other things don't get in the way. See, they call themselves a Christian, but the world speaks far more loudly to their heart and to their mind than the word does. There's no fruit to be seen. They look just like their atheist neighbour or their agnostic neighbour. Can I be frank? The person who is the third soil often used to teach Sunday school and used to be on beach mission and used to lead at Easter convention and used to be in a small group every week. But just over time, they drifted away from it as other things became more important to them. And now, now they might be at church or they might not. But then there's the fourth type of soil. They hear the word and they welcome it deeply. They dwell on it. They let its roots run deep inside them. They're like the blessed man of Psalm 1. I just wonder if Jesus had Psalm 1 in mind. As he told this parable, take out your outline. I've printed these two wonderful verses from Psalm 1. This is my prayer for every one of you and me, by the way. This person's delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. And so he is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. See, that's what Jesus longs for for us to be the fourth soil, to welcome the word of God, to take it in, to meditate on it daily, and so it produces fruit from us and in us. And he doesn't define the fruit. You know, some people think he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, from Galatians, you know, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, I've forgotten some, faithfulness, self-control, what have I left out, Kev? Put you on the spot. Goodness, maybe that's telling. Anyway, I said gentleness. But I think it's more than that. It's the fruit of godliness. That's what it is. You can't define it. It's the fruit of godliness, a fruit of a life lived in keeping, in following our Lord. That's the fruit. And in particular, it's the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of other people hearing the good news from us and being built up in their knowledge of Jesus through us. That is the fruit that the fourth soil will bear. So that's the four soils. But now, far more importantly, we want to ask, why did Jesus tell us this story? What did he want us to take away from it? And I think he wants us to take at least 
three things. And I've put three headings there on your outline under the point of the story, three lessons. Firstly, he wants us to learn a lesson about evangelism. That's the first thing. Remember, he's given this explanation to his disciples. These are the 12 men who he is equipping and commissioning to take the gospel to the world. They're going to tell people about Jesus. They're going to invite people to repent and believe. And this story is getting them ready. It's preparing them and us for the responses we're going to get. And see, Jesus is telling us this story so we're not surprised. So we don't expect that evangelism will be like this triumphant march where we just tell everyone about Jesus and everyone falls on their knees and repents and believes and everyone's happy. He's saying, don't be surprised if you get different responses. Some people will reject it outright. Some people will seem to grasp it, but then fade away. He's saying they are the responses you'll see. And this is just a little reminder that our job is to cast out the seed. That's your job. That's my job. That's every Christian's job, to preach the word in season and out of season. We cast out the seed. Let God decide what growth will come from it. Second thing is, this teaches us about church. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know people who are soil too. I must admit, I got a bit emotional preparing this sermon during the week because I went back through the church role and I found people who are no longer with us, who the sun has withered away. And if you don't know people who are soil too, I praise God, you certainly know people who are soil three. And you might have been thinking of a person or people in particular as I was speaking. People who led here at church with you. People who, who led on camps with you. People who read the Bible with you. Maybe even people who led you to Christ. And now you look at them and they've gone lukewarm. And other things seem to have just crowded Jesus out. He's no longer at the centre. He's very much at the periphery of their lives. Or worse still, now they fear, you fear, for their salvation. Because these people seem to have rejected Jesus outright. I was thinking of a friend this week, one of the friends who led me to cry, was involved in leading me to Christ and following me up. A few years back he committed adultery, left his wife, and now as far as I'm aware he's turned his back on the Lord. And at the time that rocked me. It rocked my faith. It's actually like when we watch videos of old kids clubs and old church camps and that sort of thing. And I always have mixed emotions when we do that, like at our celebration service a few weeks back. Because on the one hand, it's great joy. You think, look at the great things God's done in these people's lives. But then you see a face there who came on the camp. And you think, they're no longer with us. And sometimes they've moved church for some reason. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But at least you know they're still walking with the Lord. But often, sometimes, they haven't. And you know they have walked away from Jesus. And that can rock our faith, can't it? But Jesus tells us this story to say to us, yes, it is sad. Grieve for them. Love them. Keep sharing Jesus with them. But don't let it rock your faith. Because I told you it would be like this. I told you this would happen. Thirdly, and I think, of course, even as I've been talking, unless you are very, very hard-hearted, you have been thinking the question Jesus wants you to think, which is the third application of this parable. 
What's that question? It's which soil am I? But I actually think there's a far more important question than which soil am I? And it's the question Jesus wants us to ask, and that is, which soil do I want to be? That's the question that matters. Which soil do I want to be? Because here's the thing. No one begins the Christian walk thinking, I want to be the second soil. No one says, I've become a Christian today, and I'm intending that this will just be a phase I go through. And as soon as anything hard happens, you won't see me again. No one's... That's impossible. You can't do that. You see, no one says, I'm going to be on fire for a year. You'll see me at Kids Holiday Club. But then something bad's going to happen and you won't see me. No one thinks that. No one thinks that's what I'm going to be as a Christian. No one intends to be the second soil. But what happens is, the problem is, the person isn't prepared for the sufferings and the struggles when they come. They're not prepared for it. They aren't are deeply grounded enough in the word of God. Their roots haven't gone deeply enough into God's promises in his word. So when the suffering comes and when the pressures come, what happens? They turn on God in anger and say, well, why did you let this happen to me? I'm a good Christian. Instead of saying, God, you told me this would happen and I trust in you and I find comfort in your word. And no one, when they become a Christian, no one says, I want to be the third soil. That's what I want to be. I love Jesus, but I'm going to be lukewarm. If that is you, if that's you, you're not yet converted. If you've, if you've come to be a Christian and you think that, then you're not yet converted. You need to get converted. You need to come to know Christ. Because when you first become a Christian, if you're lukewarm, you haven't understood the gospel. So no one thinks, that's what my Christian life is going to be. I want to be unfruitful for Jesus. Let's sing songs about how little fruit we can bear for Jesus and the gospel. No one says that. No one says, I'm going to be a Christian, but really my focus is going to be building treasure here on earth. No one does it. But what happens is, again, either they never get grounded in the word of God deeply enough, and so they just quickly get entangled by the word, world, sorry, or they don't maintain their grounding in the Word of God. And so over time, the Word of God shifts from being their focus. And slowly, like the frog in the saucepan, do you guys know that picture? How they say, if you want to kill a frog, not that I want to encourage you to ever do this, you put it in a saucepan of cold water and then turn the heat on. And over time, the heat warms it. It doesn't know what's happening until eventually it just explodes. It's a great thing. I'll do it with my kids this week. No. But the the point is, it's slow and you don't realise it's happening and it's the same with the third soil. No one wakes up in the morning and says, today I've had enough, I'm going to be unfruitful. What happens is, it's like a thousand little steps over time. So you don't even notice it. But somewhere along the line, Jesus shifts from the centre and your focus becomes the job, owning the home the investments, or whatever else. Sadly, if I can speak prophetically for a moment, I see this all too often here in our church. Too many members of our churches are unfruitful. 
and worldly. And the reason is the world speaks far more loudly than the word in our lives. And I think that's often the case because often that is the model we have seen in other Christians in the modern church. A lukewarm, take it or leave it, fit it in around everything else, Christianity. But this is the thing, as I said before. No one decides to become lukewarm. It just begins with the small things. It just begins with, well, I don't really need to be in a Bible study. I don't really need to get there every week. I'll just go a little less regularly. I'll just be a little less regular at church. I don't need to meet with other Christians. I know Jesus. I know the gospel. And that's just the seen things. Far more telling are the unseen things, which is the closed Bible on the bedside table. Or actually then it gets off the bedside table because it's beneath so many other things. And it just isn't opened for a week, for two weeks, for a month. It's the ever-decreasing time spent in prayer. And if I'm naming you at that point, if you're thinking, oh, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I just call myself Jesus. That's terrible. <laughs> but it's his word. If I'm naming you at that point, you can get angry at me. You can justify yourself to me. Or maybe you are so hard-hearted that it's just washing over you and you don't care. But I want to say to you, very few people become the third soil overnight. Usually it is thousands of little steps and before we know it, the thorns are way above our head, choking out our fruit. And I want to speak to you in particular if you are younger than me here tonight, which is quite a lot of you. I want to say you are at the point now that will decide the fruitfulness of your Christian life in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time. Now is the time to immerse yourself in the Word of God and become deeply rooted. If you are lukewarm now, if I were a betting man and I'm not, I would bet that you will not be following the Lord in 10 years' time. If you are lukewarm when you're 19 or 23, you will be dead stone cold at 35. So I want to say, get into the Word of God now. If you can't commit every week to a Bible study group now, you will have no hope then and you will be cold then. If you can't commit to meeting around the word of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ at church every week now, you will have no hope then. Now is the time to get yourself grounded in the word of God. See, this is what Jesus wants for us. This is what Jesus wants for you. He longs for us to be the fourth soil. But here's the thing. The call of this passage is not, so go and be the fourth soil. Go and bear fruit for Jesus. That's not what it's saying. That's not Jesus' point. No, what is the call that Jesus makes? It is the call to be someone who soaks in the word of God. That's what Jesus wants. To be someone who dwells on it day and night and soaks it up so that we become a rich, deep, fertile soil, so that we have roots that are deep down into the Word of God. And that means we then are immovable, whatever the world throws at us. See, the call of this passage is, love the Word of God. That's what it is. Commit yourself to knowing it and meditating on it 
and living by it. And then, then you will be fruitful. See, the call isn't be fruitful. The call is ground yourself in the Word of God and the fruit will grow organically out of you. And the thing is, it's not like the person who is the fourth soil doesn't face exactly the same pressures and exactly the same persecutions as the person who is the second soil. And it's not like they don't face exactly the same temptations and have exactly the same weeds and thorns growing around them as the person who's the third soil. Now the difference is that the person who is the fourth soil is so well grounded in the word of God that when the persecutions do come, or when the temptations do come, they hold firm because their roots are so deep. So can I ask you to have an honest moment of self-reflection now? I hesitate to do this because usually someone starts talking to the person next to them and all that. So don't do that. Just you, you, God's word and God, not the person next to you. Honest moment of self-reflection. First of all, which soil are you currently? Be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to share it with anyone. Which soil are you? But then I want to say, and I want to ask you, in a way I don't care which soil you are now. Because actually, that's not because I'm mean and hard-hearted and don't care. It's because what I, want to, what I care about is what soil you'll be at 8.30 as you're walking away from here. That's what I care about. You see, and the more important question is, what do you want to be? Do you want to be the good soil I pray you do because my heart breaks and so should yours when I see people drifting away and I see it all the time and my heart breaks when I see people taking those first steps and I can tell you you're drifting away even though you can't see it yourself my heart breaks for that and I don't want it to be you My heart breaks when I see people getting entangled in the temptations of this world. I want you, Jesus wants you, to want to be the fourth soil. And you might think that will never be you, tossing it in or drifting away. But can I tell you, experience has shown me that there will be people here tonight who are no longer following Jesus in a year's time. And there'll be even more people here tonight who are no longer following Jesus in two years' time. I don't say that to scare you. Well, I do a little. But I don't say it for that reason. I say it to make you say, that will not be me. I want to be the fourth soil. And if you do, well, the question I want to ask is, what are you going to do about it? I mean, seriously, I do not want you to walk away from this sermon as just another sermon from Phil telling me I should evangelize and read my Bible more. Because I give those every week. It's because of what the Bible says. But really, seriously, I want you to think, what practical steps am I going to take to ground myself more deeply in the Word of God? So if you struggle to read your Bible yourself, and that's because it's a time thing, you just can't get out of bed before 11 o'clock in the morning or something. What practical step are you going to do to set aside the time? What are you going to do? Make a decision. Write it down on your piece of paper. What am I going to set my alarm half an hour earlier so I read the Word of God? So it's not just good intentions. It's not just, yeah, I should read the Bible more. It's I am reading the Bible more. But I think for a lot of us, 
it's I really don't know how to read the Bible very well. And I do, when I do set aside time to read it, I don't know how. So I want to say to you, well, who are you going to seek out to help you learn how? Who are you going to ask and say, can you read the Bible with me and teach me how to read it? If meeting on a Sunday to learn from God's word has ceased to be a priority for you, has slipped from your number one priority to something you fit in if you can, well, what are you going to do about it? Write it down. Make a commitment. What am I going to do about it? What are the things I'm going to drop to make it a higher priority? If meeting with other Christians during the week in gospel teams on Wednesday night or Thursday night has slipped off your radar, you just never got into a group this year, or you have but you don't really go very often, well, what are you going to do about it? What decision are you going to make to change in your week? Because the thing is, with all these things, we've got to want to. We've got to want to, and then we've got to make practical steps to make it happen. See, those things are the good gifts God has given us to give us deep roots, to ground us in his word. If we don't take advantage of them, we are saying, I just don't want to be the good soil. I'm happy to be the second or the third. That's good enough for me. And sadly, that is a sign that really our heart has already been captured by the world far more than by the word. I don't want that to be you. And more importantly, Jesus wants you to want to be the fourth soil. So take a moment now. Please don't talk to anyone on your own, in your mind, on your phone, in that notes thing or with a pen on your paper. Jot down some hard actions of what you are going to do to ground yourself or to continue to ground yourself in God's word and build those deep roots. So I'm going to leave you a couple of minutes to do that now before Matt comes up and leads us to the next part. And then after a song, I think I'm going to come back for our question time.